So from Isaiah 52, we're going to be reading verses 1 and 2 and then 7 through 12. Hear now God's word. Awake! Awake! Clothe yourselves in your strength, Zion. Clothe yourselves with your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust and rise up. Captive Israel, release yourself from the chains around your neck. Captive daughter of Zion. And then to verse 7. <clears throat> How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh, the Lord, to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the goyim, all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Do not touch what is unclean. Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in a hurry nor will you go in haste as fugitives. For Yahweh, the Lord, will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, we've been reading through and preaching through, and will continue to do so throughout this year, incredible visions that the Lord gave to the prophet Isaiah, and that we are invited to open our eyes to, our hearts to. This is an incredible vision here. After the development of, really, Isaiah 40, all the way through uh, this 52nd chapter, we see this build up, all this anticipation. You know, with chapters 44 and 45, we've already had the prophecies about um, Cyrus, the Persian king and emperor, who is going to be the anointed of the Lord to allow the exiles, the Jewish exiles, to return to Judah and Jerusalem. And this prophecy is over 150 years before Cyrus is even doing that in the 530s. I mean, Isaiah is prophesying this back in the late 700s. It's, it's, it's incredible. But now we see what's happening beyond Cyrus. And this is an incredible vision. So, so let me explain to you what's happening here. You've got to get into this vision. You have to imagine a people in a city that have just been besieged and under attack and under high levels of stress for a long period of time, right? 
Can you get into that, resonate with that a little bit, maybe after a year of COVID-19? Well, just imagine if we weren't dealing with COVID-19 only, but also we had been defeated militarily and carried off into exile. And not only are we dealing with disease and a whole lot of death, but we've lost ourselves and our homeland and everything else, right? So, so that's, that's kind of, but, but, but then God gives Isaiah this vision and it's a vision of people leaders and the citizens and the watchmen whose job it is from a city to look out and see what is happening out there in the decisive battle. We've already lost a number of battles, but now the decisive battle we think is happening. And it could either mean that we are forever going to be lost. We're going to lose everything. Everything's going to be, the world basically is going to be taken away from us. Or there's a slim chance, a possibility that somehow, by some kind of miracle, we'll win. And so the city, on this brink of total loss and ultimate disaster, is looking out. And imagine these people, the citizens, the watchmen, who have the really good eyes, who've been appointed to be watching along the mountaintops in the approach lanes towards the city. And then all of a sudden, one of the watchmen sees. There, he's coming over the mountaintops. What does he look like? Does he look desperate? Does he look afraid? Does he look like he's gonna tell us everything's lost and you better grab your babies and get out of the city fast because we are going down. The worst of the worst has happened. Is that what the, no, the watchman with the really good eyes can see. He looks joyful. He looks happy. Wait a minute, what's that he's waving? He's waving the banner of the evil empire. Our troops have taken the banner of the evil empire. How beautiful those feet must look running along the mountaintop to bring the good news. Not news that everything is lost. Get out fast while you can. Oh no, oh no. That's what Isaiah is seeing. That's what God's word is bringing to us at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of the victory, the miracle victory deliverance. We will see good days ahead. There will be peace. And, and he's even waving the banner of the defeated evil enemy. And wait, wait a minute, he's coming close. Everybody on the walls, everybody, can you hear him? What's he saying? Your God rules. Your God won the victory. This is a wonderful vision, isn't it? And now what are we going to see next? The triumphant troops, you know, returning to the city for the great parade. What are we going to see? I wonder what happened out there in the battle. How does God rule? How did we win anyway? Well, let's just pause right there. We're going to get into that story for a few minutes, but uh, it's not what you would expect. Just like Easter 
the miracle of Easter is not really that a bunny hops around and lays eggs on the front lawn. That is actually, that's not the miracle that an Easter bunny lays eggs and that we all say, well, spring is back with us. Now, God is calling us in this opening passage to wake up, to worship, to win, and to witness. Notice from this passage, uh, what God is saying is, wake up, people. <laughs> I am at work, and I have worked decisively today. I have won the victory. That's the big news of Easter. But you notice there's three more W's that we need to focus on, right? We are called to worship. You notice this. It's not like, well, he won, or they won out there somehow. Now, you guys just kind of turn the TV on or get back to your sports or get back into whatever. You know, everything's fine. We won the victory, so just go back to normal. No, no, no. Israel is being called out to worship. Put on your holy garments and come out in priestly regalia and come out in worship. Not like crazy people running all over the place in fear or in self-indulgence, but come out royally as priestly kings, as a, as, a, as a kingdom of priests, come out in holy procession to worship the Lord. And you know what? God always calls his people to response, doesn't he? He is the Savior, but he calls us to respond in worship. That's what we're made for, to glorify him. And we remember that as people of Christ, especially on every Sunday morning, not just one Sunday morning out of the year, but you know what? All through the Bible, right? They kept gathering in the New Testament. They kept gathering on the first day of the week. Why? Every day is holy unto the Lord, certainly. But why would people want to come together as the church, as the body on the first day of the week? Because that's the day of resurrection. That's when everything changed. And God calls his people. If you're actually a Christian, if you actually believe in him, you set your week, you set your schedule to worship him and come before him in worship. And you're called also, we are called also not only to worship, but to win. Sin and death have been defeated. Satan has been conquered. And we are to live accordingly. We are to live as victorious people. And we're also to give witness to this. We're supposed to share it with others. We're supposed to share the larger story. He has won a victory and calls us to action as victorious people to spread the victory to others. So back to our story here, though. Um, what is the answer? We don't see a victorious army coming over the mountains, do we? As we return to what this is setting up, this passage that I just read runs into directly, transitions into directly, the passage we've been focusing on for the past two or three Sundays, couple Sundays, which is the fourth of the four servant songs in Isaiah, in that part of Isaiah that runs from Isaiah 40 through 55. And this is the high point. As we've been learning, this is the theological pinnacle, the Mount Everest of the entire Old Testament, bringing together God's judgment and God's saving grace, God's love and God's holy righteousness. How can all that be resolved in our broken world where nobody's righteous and where everything's messed up? And how can all that come together? Well, it's going to come together through a servant. 
but he is a surprise if we've, as we've been learning. The servant of the Lord here in the fourth song is incredible. The servant is not talking this time. Again, it's a dialogue between God and the people who despised and rejected the servant and are amazed. Remember, right after what we just read, you know, God rules. Come and share it together, right? Isaiah 52, 13, the opening of the song. The Lord says, behold, right? We've been called to pay attention, watch and get up and worship. Okay, then the Lord says, okay, look, look, you want to see? You want to see the real thing? The thing that the messengers are talking about? What's the good news all about? The Lord says, 52:13, behold, Abdi, my servant, he will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. Again, in Isaiah, those terms in combination like that are used only about God elsewhere. And here they're used about the Lord's servant and the Lord himself is saying it. This servant is divine. My servant, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So what's going on here? Well, if we don't have an army, we're probably dealing with a champion, right? In the ancient world, in many situations, entire armies did not have to fight if two champions from the two different sides gathered for mortal combat, mortal conflict. And of course, in the Old Testament, our classic exemplar of this is none other than David, right? You remember Goliath is the champion, the hero, the representative of the Philistines. And nobody in Israel wants to fight him. Remember this, he's taunting Israel and Israel's God in the valley of Elat, right? And then David arrives with supplies for the men and David hears Goliath and nobody's gonna take Goliath on and David says, you can't let this man, this idiot, this uncircumcised Philistine taunt and defame our God. Our God is holy. I'll take him on. You remember the story, right? And, and Goliath, Goliath ends up, you know, engaging David and David engaging Goliath in the valley, right? In the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, one, one of them's gonna die, but they represent the entire people group, okay? And you may remember this, Goliath actually falls, the impregnable, the impossible. Yeah, he's, by the way, he is, he is armed from head to toe, the way it's described in the book of Samuel, in serpentine-like armor. Like he represents the serpent all the way back to Genesis 3.15, if you're with me on Wednesday nights, right? The serpent and the seed of the woman. And David, the seed of the woman, steps in and takes out Goliath and Goliath falls. And then what that means with the champions is his victory, David's victory, is imputed to the entire people. Do you understand what I just said? His victory is imputed to all of Israel. But notice the story doesn't end like that, right? Because David has taken out Goliath, but then all of Israel and all the men of Israel, hey, he killed Goliath, let's jump in. I mean, the victory is basically already won, but the people are called to action. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're called to action. We're called to worship and to win and to witness. So um, in, the, in the ancient world, there's a term 
for this in, in various languages. In Greek, the term is archegos. And you may have noticed when Reed read the scripture, we, we were emphasizing that. I really wanted you to get that. The, the term archegos is used four times in the New Testament, twice in Acts and twice in the book of Hebrews. And every time it's applied not only specifically to Jesus, but also to Jesus who dies for us and is raised and exalted by God. Every single time, all four times. Because in other words, Jesus is our champion. He's our hero. In the Greek, the archegos can be used of a hero, a founder, like of a people or a city, okay? A hero, a champion who fights for us, as well as a pioneer and leader that we're supposed to follow. David is kind of the classic example, the prototype, the typing that points us to Jesus, because David is like all that, right? The city's name, the city of David, right? The one who brought our nation together, the one who fought for us, the shepherd king, uh, the pioneer who sets the path for us and leads us. But wait a minute. When we come to the ultimate son of David, who will establish the household forever, he's not going out fighting with slings or swords or anything like that. He lays himself down for our sin to take on sin and death and Satan and all the principalities and powers. Hebrews chapter 2, verses, second part of verse 8 through 10. I'm going to read you the other passages, read, read a couple of them. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Yet at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. In other words, we don't see that Jesus is one. It's not easy to see that with our fleshly eyes. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. You understand this now. We can't see his victory all the time. But we, if we believe in him, if we have the Holy Spirit, we can actually see Jesus. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He's the point of the spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is the archegos. He's gone ahead of you. He's the point of the spirit. He's made his way through death. He's already cut the path for you. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make, this is God. Now, God should make the archegon, our champion, our founder, our pioneer leader, our prince. Archegos also means prince. Should make the archegon of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, you've got to understand what I just read here from Hebrews. Jesus is already perfect, right? He's already divinely perfect. But what this is saying is Jesus is perfect in the sense that he's completed his saving work for us through his suffering and death on the cross. That's what that means. He was made perfect as the point of the spear, as the archegos, as the champion who's cut the way all the way through all of the consequences of our sin and death and hell. And he comes out holding the keys of death and Hades, right? Revelation 1. Acts. Peter comes back to this theme again. Uh, read, read you one passage earlier. So this is Acts 5, 30 through 32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as archegon, as champion, as pioneer, prince, and savior, soter. Okay, so he's archegon and he's also our savior, soter, um, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is how we get forgiven of our sins, right? He's the archegon. He's gone through it all. And we are witnesses. Notice this. Do we just kind of go back and watch our movies and kind of live our lives? No, no, no. We are witnesses. We're martyrs for this. We're willing to die for this and tell everybody about this. But yeah, some people maybe feel it's awkward for me to share my faith. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. People who obey the Lord are living in the Holy Spirit and are saved. People who call themselves Christians but, but are not living like this in the worship and the witness. I mean, Sunday to Sunday, Friday to Friday, but especially Sunday to Sunday. You're not in the Holy Spirit. But, but if you are, you are joined in the Holy Spirit in the witness of Jesus Christ. That's what that just said, Acts 5.32. And then also, um, again, Acts 3, 13 through 15. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the archegon, the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So God says, look at my servant. He will be high and lifted up. He is. Worship him. Worship him. Worship him on the day of resurrection every week and head into your week following him, trusting him, putting him first. Not just for, definitely for a couple hours in the morning on Sunday morning, but into the week. But wait a minute, I got all kinds of other obligations and that's kind of our family day and that's when we do sports and stuff. Look, you can make those decisions. I'm telling you the real victory is with him. You want to win forever, you go with him. And listen to what he did for you. Um, the closing, remember, there's five stanzas in the suffering servant song. Let's go to um, the final stanza today. We worked through the others. Remember, he's pierced for our transgressions centrally. Um, but 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. How? Why would the Lord want to? Because of the Lord knowing what's on the other side of this for his exaltation and for our salvation. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He, the Lord, God, has put Jesus to grief. Why? So that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, see, you had to have his soul make an offering for your guilt. He shall see his offspring, his seed. This is covenant language now, all the way back to the Old Testament. See, he shall prolong his days and the Lord's will shall prosper his hand. Wait a minute, he's dead. Yeah, but he's going to come out on the other side. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see light and be satisfied. If you're looking at the ESV, it just says he will see it, but you notice the footnote, and I told you about this last week, just like in the earlier verse on the tomb, right? Bumta is the much better translation, and it goes back to the Dead Sea Scrolls for Isaiah, right? Qumran 1a, Qumran 1d, and Qumran 4. All of those as well as the Greek Septuagint. Just like on that verse, the tomb language, here also, 
Yeraor in the Hebrew. Yeraor, or he will see light. So all the way back to Psalm right, 36, we celebrate the light that he gives to us. So he will see light. Jesus will see light. You know, he saw it when the tomb opened up, right? When he rose from the dead. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many. Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Wait a minute, I thought he was dead. Oh no, he's alive now. He's living as the victor, and he divides the spoil, just like a victor who's won the battle. Okay? He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. This is why the Lord delights in what he has done on the cross, because the victory is shared by the grace of God. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you. That's awesome. That's Isaiah 53, 12. So what about the champion? And what about David? Remember how I told you David killed Goliath? How could David, that young lad, go in and take on the snake, right? We know from the Psalms, David himself, even though he's very courageous, is afraid of death and being separated from God, right? Did David go into that battle alone? No. Because his shepherd, his champion, was there with him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And you've already been through this, haven't you, Lord? Hmm? Yeah. So wake up, wake up, wake up, Christians. Wake up to their new reality. Worship him, win with him. I mean, worship with him. You know what, dads, household leaders, you need to be the champion for your family. I know there are all kinds of other agendas, but lead that family into worship on Sundays and throughout the week. You are the champion, you are the shepherd, you are the leader. You know what? Call your family to win and live victoriously. Yeah, but I don't feel good or I haven't got problems. You know what? The other kids are doing this. Call your children, your grandchildren, your household to win. You're going to be a lot different than most of the rest of the world in 2021, believe me. But this is the way to real victory, to follow Jesus and go with him and witness for him. And then let's come together. Let's come together as the church, as the body. And as Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on our archegon, right? Hebrews 12. The archegon, the pioneer, the champion, and perfecter of our faith. And run with perseverance the race. Come to him. Follow him. Stay with him. He has the victory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.